Hello. Who are you? I'm Connor. Hi, Connor. I'm from the Amer- North American continent. Would you like to come into the science shed? Yeah, I've come all the way to talk to you guys today. Well, the science shed is... Is this your shed? This is our shed. Wow. The science shed is... So neat. (laughs) Thanks. Well, come in, sit down. Hang on. Are you British? I am British, Oh, my God. I love your accent. Thanks very much. Are you guys... I tell you, you have so much history. We do. We've got castles and everything. Wow. You know, speaking of castles, you know I'm related to Henry VIII? Really? I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, what's going to (laughs) happen? Connor, you come in, sit yourself down. We've got two university academics who are going to kind of talk at you for about 30 minutes. Me, I'm Stephen Lee. I'm a chemist from the University of Cambridge. And my colleague, who's got lost somewhere, but is, uh, is Nick Evans. He's from the University of Southampton. Wow, okay. Well, I'll, I'll just put my taco bell down and I'll listen in. Is that all right? That's great. We'll get on with it. How about that? Gee, wow, yeah. <laughs> Bunsen, Dolly, Internal, Why do we need Patrick, Oscar, Isaac, Transplanting. Oh, Steve. Nick. How you doing? How are you? Yeah, good, man. Um, how you feeling? Oh, yeah, pretty good. It's a nice day today, isn't it? It's beautiful. What have you been up to? The weather's generic. <laughs> <laughs> um, this and that, this and that. Yeah, no, I've, I've been learning a bit about... Um, uh, DNA this week. DNA. CRISPR technology. CRISPR. So I thought it'd be really fun to have like a, a special episode on CRISPR. CRISPR. I've heard of that. Yeah. So it's a good way of um, altering the um, the type of genes which are switched on and off. It's, one of, it's going through a, um, a bit of a... Um, uh, uh, there's a big lawsuit happening at the moment, isn't it, about CRISPR? Because it's going to be worth billions and billions of dollars. I think that the the, the um, conclusions are almost going to come out, so you should probably follow up on another podcast. But yeah, they've yeah. been fighting, basically, they've been fighting over who invented it. It's a bun fight. Yeah. It's like a kid's bun fight. So we thought we'd spend a whole uh, special edition just talking about CRISPR, what it is, how does, how people discovered it, and, and, and why it's important. It's got a really interesting background as well, and it's got a background that says a lot about how scientific discoveries are made, and I think it's got another... There's a lesson to be learned there, and, like, how you should fund what people do, and, you know, often you don't know where something's going to go, so right. it's good to fund things... So what you're saying is I can slack off all the time, because, <laughs> it, because and then when something <laughs> happens at my lab, I'll say, oh, well... That's how these things happen. I think the argument is that you've got to encourage people who do science to do something because they're really fascinated in it and hope that just by that fascination, it is of fundamental interest and will be of importance in the future. Well, this, this is... You're, you're, wow, you know what, I'm, like, already, I'm getting Nick, all serious Nick, in nature already. Normally, normally you're, I'm the one trying to be serious and then you're the one just being facile, but you seem totally into it. Well, let me tell you a bit more about it now. Let's should, crack on. Should we get on with it? Yeah. Steve. How are you doing? I was just thinking about what you were talking earlier on. You know, you were saying about how in science you should be able to just do it for the hell of it. And your mate, Fraser, what's his face? Fraser Stoddard. Sir Fraser Stoddard. Sir Fraser. I'm sorry. FRS. Sir. He he made the argument that you... you, you, Science, the thing that you do or the thing that you create or show in science shouldn't necessarily have to have an application. Not, yeah. You should be able to research things just for the sake of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I this reminds me of a paper that I've, I've come across. Huh, this did week. you come across this paper, Nick? I did, yeah. It's a review paper, actually. Yeah. But um, it's about... <clears throat> he's talking about the, he- the history of CRISPR. 
CRISPR. Tell me about CRISPR, Steve. What do you understand okay. of CRISPR? So, People out there may have heard about CRISPR. So, yeah. Um, if you haven't heard about CRISPR, a, a physical chemist is about to try oh, and explain it to you. Okay, so you, you can just can destroy, destroy my self-worth as I try and bumble my way through this. So um, CRISPR-Cas uh, is a gene editing technology. So it's the ability to be able to... Um, uh, splice together bits of dna and it's actually it was it was um uh, so typically what we the the technology we used before was a technology called uh, srna oh, nick's crashing into his microphone there um and and crispr is the kind of it's a really interesting way of being able to kind of cut and paste dna and it's all based upon the bacterial immune system as i as, I, as if i'm correct um so they actually people were studying how bacteria um deal with infection but viral infection and it was actually from the kind of pure fundamental understanding of trying to care about that problem that they realized they could actually apply this to be able to be to be used in a lab for being able to cut and paste DNA um, and what's really amazing about CRISPR is all my kind of biological collaborators it's gone from a kind of obscure kind of interest to literally the entire world uses this now uh, in a really short period of time in a period of about two years it went from the first paper through to um, this kind of huge adoption of it so it's a real kind of interesting way to be able to kind of modify dna effectively how but how bad did i do it that's pr that's pretty good steve yes. you've obviously been on it with it so um yeah this paper is about the history of it and where it came from and right stuff. um and you're right crispr is a way of manipulating um your dna so your genome, what makes you you, um, it's basically a pair of molecular scissors. Yeah. So uh, I don't know whether you've heard of restriction enzymes. I have. They're really cool. So restriction enzymes are things which I've used in biology, which basically they just like molecular scissors and they chop DNA at a sequence of several um, what we call base pairs. So they're like letters in the DNA code. So they snip them at about a sequence of about five or six. And there are loads of them. Bacteria make them, yeah, and as you've alluded yeah. to earlier on, they're used to as a defense mechanism to protect bacteria against viruses. Yeah. So if you get foreign DNA in your bacteria cell, the bacteria goes. Just, oh, just, don't like just that. take a minute for a second, right? It's, isn't it a bit weird that bacteria catch colds? Yeah. So they get viral infections. We don't think about it that way. Normally, people think about viruses and bacteria as being the things that make us ill. But to a bacteria, they can just as easily get catch a cold like we can a flu. Yeah. A flu flu virus. And it has really economic impact, which I'll come to in a second. Right. But anyway, these these transcription fat. Th sorry, these um, restriction enzymes. They snip any DNA that comes in a bacteria cell, and it kind of protects it from viruses, basically. Yeah. So we've known about them for years and years and years, and you've used them for for um, genetic modification. Yeah. So if you want to put a gene into another cell, yeah. you can use the restriction enzyme to snip it from somewhere and you can pop it in a what's called a plasmid, a sort of circular piece of DNA. Mm. And then you can you can grow that up in a big broth of bacteria and then you can whack it on some cells. So you can change things. So we've known about that for quite a long time, since the seventies in fact. Right. CRISPR. Right. So CRISPR. that brings a whole new brings it to a whole new level because you can basically go anywhere, can't you? Well, CRISPR works. It's it's actually very for my. So, so, so the analogy would be, I suppose, is that like if you wanted to kind of cut what, what things do you cut normally, say vegetables or something. Right. So the analogy would be that using restriction enzymes, if you wanted to cut vegetables, you could only cut them in defined positions along your carrot or something. You couldn't cut them anywhere along your carrot. It's kind of like that, but it's more, I think of it more as being restriction enzymes because they recognise quite small little bits of DNA. Yeah. All right. They can only 
they, they will cut in many different places in the genome and you can't control it very well. Right. And you're, you're dictated to by the enzyme that you use. There's lots of restriction en- enzymes. Yeah. Um, loads of different types, all of them specifically cut in one place. Yeah. So you, you're limited by the, 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 the scissors you use. You've got only got one pair of scissors. So the scissors cut, not only cut carrots, but they also cut courgettes and you can't stop them. Oh, yeah. Them. Okay. Using that analogy, they just yeah. chop everything. Yeah. And like if you were like a vegetable patch yeah. and you wanted to, for instance, just like have a little piece of carrot, you'd end up with all of your celery chopped into pieces, <laughs> all of your sweet potato all mashed up. Right. Your runner beans would be ruined. But you, but Basically, you your vegetable carrots. patch would be dead. But well, your carrot would be there somewhere, but yeah. the vegetable patch would be dead. Right. No more vegetables, Steve. So, so CRISPR comes along. CRISPR is like those. It's like a restriction enzyme, but you can control precisely where it cuts right. in the genome. All right. And the way that I, I won't go into the boring details of how it was actually quite interesting details. Maybe save that for another time. Yeah. But anyway, you can stipulate. So you can make the piece of it is kind of DNA, weird. Again, people... and you can basically use that as a. It's all almost like a ticker tape programming device for a well, computer. That's exactly it? yeah. And the enzyme. So you program the enzyme to go and cut where you want. I think it's really interesting, and I don't think people may have kind of. You've probably so familiar with it because you're a biologist, but like the need to be able to cut and paste DNA is a really interesting just idea, right? So, we, so DNA is the instruction on how to make things, right? And what we can do is we can take the DNA out of one organism that makes one particular protein. You can put it in something else, right? So you can, so that, that's just totally a weird thing. So you can take the instruction to, to make um, a protein that, for instance, fluoresces, and you can put that into an animal or to a bacteria or something that doesn't fluoresce, and it will produce it because the machinery of the cell doesn't know what it's making. It just gets fed an instruction. And, but, but in order to do that, we have to be able to put the instruction in the right place. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of weird to think about. It's just, this, like you say, this ticker tape that we can now manipulate. So you can do that, and we've talked about this before, so I don't want to go back into any more detail on it. We can refer to the, one of the other podcasts. But basically, you can, as you said, you can put one protein into the germline, so the stem cells, the embryo cells of an animal, and you'll end up with an animal which has got that gene in them. Fluores- mm. So you'll get a fluorescent mouse, for instance. Yeah. Now, CRISPR... The problem with that technique is you you rely on a technique called homologous recombination. Right. So basically, you have a massive piece of DNA, and in the middle of that, you've got the gene that you want. And you mix that DNA up with your cells yeah. in some way. There are several ways of doing it. And very rarely, you'll get an event where that gene will slip into the genome. Right. Most often, it'll go in the wrong place. Occasionally, it'll go in the right place. Right. Then what you so do you is to get you select lucky. those cells. Yeah, you have to get very lucky. Then you have to select the cells. It's very laborious. It's very poorly controlled. You can't do it very easily. Right. So the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, what it allows you to do now is to very, very specifically, with very high degree of accuracy and efficiency, to be able to snip the genome and insert things in so exactly we can just, the we right can just get the carrots. No c- carrots and no celery. You can get a really nice, precisely then controlled no. baton of a carrot. <laughs> Beautiful. If you want right. to put on your plate. Right. But I mean, and so the applications are, there are a huge number of applications and they range from the basic sciences to maybe gene, gene, <coughs> genome editing. Right. So you could take an embryo and perhaps snip out a damaging gene. So you could yeah. cure cystic fibrosis or another disease yeah. in an early embryo. You could also maybe use it to cure genetic diseases in people. But after, so, they've, after they've been born. Yes. Yeah, so for right. instance, in certain diseases, you have a defective gene. Yeah. It's called a dominant gene. Yeah. And it's damaging for you. Yeah. So what you can do is you can send in your your pair of scissors, CRISPR-Cas9, yeah. and potentially snip away all of the damaging genes 
so that you're left with a functioning so you know like organ. So, so you, some of these could, things you like could potentially cure not only in the you know as an embryo, embryo but in an adult as well. Well, that's what people think. That's the big claims. Yeah. Of, Exactly, so, and it's, but also things like um, eye color are genetically controlled, right? And and uh, whether you can smell, um, yeah, uh, your asparagus. Sex. Your sex, your sex, male is or controlled. female. Well, could we change? Could we change our gender? Is what you're saying? <laughs> I think that you n- maybe. Well, actually, <laughs> that you, maybe you could because you just have to snip away most of the X chromosome and insert a little bit more couple yeah. of genes. I think you'd have problems actually <laughs> thinking in more detail. But about I, was, it. I like the way I was thinking about changing <laughs> eye colour and you went straight in for sex changes. <laughs> anyway, but this the theory of the theory of CRISPR Cas9 okay, is it's yeah. like going back to your mate Fraser, yeah. you said it shouldn't have it. It's totally comes from basic research. Really? So there was yeah. And I've I've been reading this paper, it's called The Heroes of CRISPR. Right. It's a really nice paper by a chap called Eric Lander, who's very What's big. What's the journal? It's in Sal. Okay, great journal. So Sal is like top, top, top journal. Anyway, and he focuses on a bunch of these people who were working on it in the 80s. Yeah. One of the first people to work on it was a guy called Francisca Mojica. M-O-J-I-C-A. So I assume that's how you say, it, say his name. Yeah. And he was just working or hanging around looking at a... Um, a bacteria which was an archaeobacteria. Right. So and it lived in a nasty, really salty environment. And his supervisor was trying to find out, well, how do these enzymes... He was actually looking at restriction enzymes. How do they work yeah. in this really, really salty environment? Anyway... There's quite, he, a, there's quite a lot of um, literature and stuff like that, isn't there? So things like thermophiles and things. Like how do, how do, bacteri- how do some things exist in very extreme environments? Because yeah. they, they must have... Um, evolved uh, some kind of ability to uh, some they've adapted to live in that environment yeah but anyway that's totally irrelevant to the okay. story of CRISPR it just happened to be what he was working okay. on it could have been anything else but what he found was he found these repeated sequences of DNA right so the, and, and they were palindromic yeah so same forward and backwards exactly yeah I can't remember the sentence madam can you think madam. of a longer one there's, there's a really long sentence oh really and it's palindromic. a palindromic oh I don't know yeah, yeah. Anyway, he read that. So these are like the DNA base pairs. They read the same forwards and read the same backwards. He found out he didn't know what the hell they were. Right. So he spent years mucking around. He was really? in Spain. He went to Cambridge. Uh, was it Cambridge or Oxford for a bit? How could they? Um, he bugged him. Really bugged him. It what the bugged hell him. Are they? <laughs> what the hell are they? Yeah. Anyway, he found a paper going back to like 1987. Someone else had found them as well. But they'd found them in normal bacteria. Okay. So because there were these. Are pretty much different sequences, but same structure of repeats. Yeah. In these early bacteria, compared with these with these archaeobacteria, he thought, well, they must be really important. Right. So they must have some conserved. Usually, when you find similar things in quite widely separated from an evolutionary point of view, as archaeobacteria and bacteria, they must are, be important. So archaeobacteria and bacteria is dissimilar from each other. As we, bacteria yeah. from eukaryotes, yeah, which is yeah. kind of quite hard to get your head around. That's eukaryotes being plants and animals and fungi and things. Anyway, so he still mucked around with it. Anyway, so he went home. He was really poor. Went back to the University of Alicante. They didn't have any money. Right. No money and no space. So he thought he'd just muck around with bioinformatics because all he needs is a computer. Ah, that's cheap. Didn't have to have a lab. Yeah. All right. And what he started to find was these little palindromic repeats. There were little other pieces of DNA interspersed among them. Okay. Right? Didn't know what they were. 
So he spent ages trying to work out what these palindromic repeats So were. there's a guy in front Couldn't of a computer. He's looking at a load of four letters in repeat. And he's trying to say, like, what? trying to look for patterns, essentially. He's like a tra- cryptographer. Exactly. He's like, he's like, a, he's like one of these... It's like, you know when Sherlock de- goes into his mind? Yeah, he, like, his mind palette. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's trying to work it out. He can't work yeah. it out. So he's been trying to work out what these palindromes... He can't seem to find anything in common with these little palindromic repeats. Yeah. So he's there's little pieces in between, and he thinks, well, maybe they're important. So what he does is he looks at those sequences, and he goes through a load of these different repeats in all different types of bacteria, and he plugs them in this search engine called Blast, right? Right. If you haven't heard of Blast... I haven't, no. So Blast is basically Google for right. the genome. Right. And all it does is it aligns similarity in sequence. Right. And all you do is you take a... You copy and paste C, C, G, A, T, whatever it is. Yeah. They're all of the codes for the base pairs. You've heard of Gattaca. Yes. The film. G, A, T, C. Yeah. So there's only four of them. You get a long sequence and you just paste them in the search engine and you press search. Yeah. And it spits out all of the matches amongst right. all of the genomes of any animal. And so presumably the longer, the longer that is, the fewer the matches. Exactly, yeah. The, yeah. Longer, the longer the sequences, the, you go, the more specificity you're going to have. Yeah. And you started to find that they were from viruses, types of Ooh. bacteria, what we call bacteriophages. So yeah. bacteriophage is a virus that infects the bacterium. They're really weird looking too, aren't they? Bacteriophages. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I don't, I, I don't know so much about the details, yeah. but you can, you think of them as being like a sort of lander. A little a, spider. A, like it looks like a lander from a spaceship. We'll tweet a picture because they freak me out when you, when you think about them, like infecting bacteria. Yeah, They've yeah. They've got a little yeah. head that's full of RNA, haven't they? Anyway, because he'd found that they were all in these bacteria part, he immediately thought, hang on a minute, this must be a way for the bacteria to store information in about the genome how, of the bacteria. Yeah, so these, this is in the genome of the bacteria. Yeah. It's catalogued. Yeah. Lo- little catalogues, little shells, little pieces of inform- information about bacteria. So he inferred from that, actually what they're doing is they're remembering about viruses that can infect them. Very cool. And it's very similar to the way that human immunity works. Yeah. When you get a cold or you get a bug, your immune system actually yeah. genetically produces these clones of cells called yeah. B cells and they store information about um, what you've been infected yeah, with. This and is that's why you, why if get you get chicken, chicken pox, pox again. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've got a cell which remembers. It's a yeah. cell with a memory. Yeah. All right. And it'll always remember it. So whenever you get chicken pox like, again, I remember says, this guy. I recognize you. You're not my friend. I kill you. I kill you this time. You got me last time. It took me a while. This time, no. This time, no. I kill you straight away. Goodbye. Like that. So the phage is yeah. going, the phage is going, it, it, it's coming in the cell, the bacteria. So, oh, let's look on the shelf here. Hmm. What have I got? Oh, I remember you. I will kill you. Right. The way it kills it is, and I'm, I'm not actually going to go into the mechanism of it, but it can use that sequence combined with an enzyme to chop it up into little pieces. Yeah. So that's how it kills it. So it's like a memory. But listen to this. So that's, right? the, guide, that's the guide RNA, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. they've all got technical okay. names, but we, we don't know, go, need to go into sure. the detail about all of it now. There are, there are lots of different types of nucleic acid that are associated with them, all so, of which have so, different... So wait, and actually, the, the, palindrom- the, the, the palindromic repeat, yeah. the palindromic repeat is important because it allows the, the DNA to loop back on itself. Right. So you get this kind of reading of it, so it gives it structure. But as far as I can tell, there's, there's an enzyme that does the chopping, and then there's a bit of DNA that tells it where to chop. 
Exactly. Is that right? Is that right? And they combine together in this complex. But the point is, is that you can change that the the, the, the chopping. Um, so before we in the restriction enzyme case, you had different things that could that can only cut in one position. Here uses the same chopping enzyme, but it's got a little bit of uh, information that tells it where to chop. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. So the actual the restriction enzyme works in probably a similar way. It recognizes yeah. a specific sequence based on some characteristics. So this is like a kind of chef's it. knife that can that can do loads and loads of things. And then the the the, the um uh so we can cut meat yeah. and fish and vegetables and everything. Whereas the other one's much more like a kind of very specific like a like a fish knife that's, that can just yeah, do one thing. Yeah, I mean thing. it's just a it's just a very brainy knife that can just chop things <laughs> so by for, itself. As the a other one's very just brainy like, knife. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this, yeah. you'll like this. So we go yeah. back to he's worked, he's seen this, right. and he's so immediately he's, all excited. he's immediately had this moment of realization. Oh, I love those moments because he's realized this is this is this is a big virus deal. DNA in a bacteria. It's it rem is remembering the bacteria is remembering what yeah. these bugs are. So he goes out to celebrate with his colleagues over a glass of cognac. Apparently, I thought he said he was skint. Well, obviously his lab's because <laughs> he's, he's got a few. Bucks. He's spending all his money maybe on fine. Living in Alicante, maybe cognac's not that expensive. That's true. Maybe. Anyway, this is a big discovery. You can right. push the boat out. That's true. Okay. Anyway, so he thinks he's got it. So he submits his paper to Nature. It's like big deal. Big deal. He knows it's a big deal. He yeah. wouldn't submit it to Nature. He didn't think it was a big deal. Yeah. Anyway, Nature rejected it without review. <laughs> Straight away. The editor Bosh. claimed, inexplicably, according to the author of this review paper, yeah. Eric Lander inexplicably rejected it, saying the key idea is already known. Key idea is not already known. So the editor doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> anyway, so he thinks, well, okay, it's a bit too new for them. Right. Going to go to another journal. He went to uh, PNAS. Very good journal. Proceedings of the National Academy of Science or of the Nick, USA. Penis. As Nick likes to call it. <laughs> rejected. Lacks sufficient novelty importance. Then he sends it to molecular microbiology. Rejected. <sighs> He sends it to nucleic acid research. Rejected. Eventually, he's desperate. He can't get this published anywhere. So he sends it to a journal of Journal of Molecular Evolution. Not heard know, of that one. Do you know what the impact factor of that is? Two? Yeah, 1.8. Okay. <laughs> so just as a guide, the journal Steve and I just... We just had a paper published quite recently. That's got an impact of about 4.85, something like that. It's a good journal. Yeah, but I don't think our discovery is... <laughs> it's <laughs> twice... That tells us we're more than twice as important as Casper. <laughs> It got re after twelve months of review and revision that it was re it finally appeared in two thousand and five. So that's like two years after he'd discovered it. Right. Anyway, this is a major discovery. So this basically paved the way for everything else. Yeah. Anyway, so there begins a long story. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of other people discovered it concurrently as well. This yeah. is a general there's, there's feature. There's a big. Of there's a huge um, um, lawsuit going on at the moment for 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 who actually officially discovered it because the commercial applications are so large. Yeah. Well, there were lots of different aspects to it as well. There's the initial discovery and the realization what it is. There's yeah. the actual making it work. Yeah. And the making it work is really, as a practical technology, is the hard part. And there were loads well, of totally, people yeah. involved in I mean, th they always get that in, in patent litigation because it's a bit like saying, I think there should be flying cars, right? <laughs> and then and then if someone comes along and invents a flying car, I can't say, well, that was my idea. I deserve <laughs> some money. <laughs> like, you know. Let me tell you about another. I, I wonder whether you can connect this up. Okay. So another chap who discovered it at about the same time, a chap called Philippe Hovars. Um, Why do you think sauerkraut is important in this story? Sauerkraut. Yeah. Well, so sauerkraut is fermenting cabbage. Mm -hmm. So you ferment it with a yeast. Um, so that's probably not going to be relevant. I don't know why sauerkraut... You ferment, so you ferment stuff with lactic acid bacteria. 
Uh. You have to do batch culture. So you're growing things in massive pots. Yeah. You're chucking in bacteria. Yeah. It's a big brew. You end yeah. up with delicious five-star cuisine. <laughs> mm. Okay. Right. Okay. You're trying to do this. You need your batch culture to be good, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't need any impurities in there. What happens if a little bacteriophage gets in there? It Hello. kills it all. Hello, he ruins your sauerkraut. I'm going to eat the bacteria. He comes in, screws it up. Right. So these companies, food science companies, employ molecular biologists to try and understand better how to minimise phage infection of their bacterial culture. Because that would ruin your sauerkraut. So basically, this guy, he was he found it independently. He found them in these um, these bacteria. And he realised as well that it was an immune system. Right. The bacteria it had. So some bacteria in these things, when you didn't have a culture that went bad, yeah. would have little pieces of phage DNA in their genomes because they'd be resistant to the phage. Right, right, right. So some of them you could use because they were resistant and other strains you couldn't. That's really cool. It's amazing, isn't it? I just... I, do you know what, though? So how much of this, Nick, do you reckon is kind of... So sometimes people hear things like this and they so say for instance your argument about like he struggled to get stuff published in what he thought was a really important discovery right yeah and you know don't get me wrong like you sometimes hear that and then they would apply that to anything right they would say correlation implies causation right so therefore if i don't get my paper accepted in science it's definitely going to be the next you know cas9 or whatever that's not what i'm implying <laughs> i know all. but it's interesting to think isn't it like we're kind of to connect the dots to tell an interesting story requires thousands and thousands of failed experiments and we're just kind of linking this kind of tenuous path through this kind of landscape yeah, of yeah, terrible yeah. experiments you know like, well the, the, the thing about it is is huge discoveries like that they'll always yeah. get found out i mean like the, the japanese people who first discovered them in 1987 yeah this chap rediscovered them in the 90s yeah okay he worked out what they were didn't publish it till 2005 mm. the people working in 1987 had no idea of any of this application. Right. But, I mean, arguably, if it hadn't been... So on a long enough time scale, we'll find it out. Well, there may be little nuggets in the scientific... Little gold nuggets <laughs> lying around in Waiting. this desert. So imagine this desert, the Nullarbor Plain, there's rocks everywhere. They're your normal papers. That's, yeah. like, that's, that's my paper over there. It's yeah. a little standy rock. Yeah. Somewhere amongst that plain, there's a in this, sparkling this vast jewel. number, there's a gold nugget of scientific that, that people just don't know about. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? It will only get picked up much later on. Mendel, another great example. Right. Mendel's pea plants. How does that... Oh, yeah, the pea plants, yeah. 25, 30 years he discovered, um, you know, this kind of digital inheritance prior to anyone else catching on. So it was only retrospectively after poor old Gregor had dropped dead. You feel... I feel... what Does does that mean that there's people that have found stuff that we haven't, like, back given them credibility for so there's probably someone that figured it out some russian in the 20s there's all it kinds out. of stories like and it, yeah. you usually only know about them when it relates to something groundbreaking like the discovery of insulin yeah there was a chap in eastern europe i can't remember whether it was slovenia or romania one of these countries in eastern europe he'd isolated pancreatic extract a long time before yeah the guys in the, the states had. but it was getting it to work that's a big part of it that but is true yeah penicillin i mean alexander fleming discovered in the mid to late 1920s yeah but it wasn't until 1938 1939 that people were able to use it because he wasn't it. asked with it they they realized the potential of it and they took it and they it's interesting isn't able it? to, and that's it, why yeah. they shared the nobel prize with it and the, uh, the same thing will happen with crispr cas yeah who's going to get i mean will it be that 
Spanish that, dude. And we think you have to, I mean, historically, it's you got to be here. He's yeah, the first he's person to, to yeah. publish the realization that to, it's a back to that, Well, that person's definitely but He didn't do anything to do with um, editing, but he discovered it. He didn't it. turn it into a tool. I agree. Yeah. I agree. He found the golden saying, nugget, Mick. He how, found the golden think nugget. Think how hard it is for the Nobel Committee to try and apportion. I oh, don't feel bad for them. They've got loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh my god! How long have we done Chris before? Too long is the answer. Oh, you Too know what? Long. I, I feel like I've got that in my system. Right. Well, I, I feel like I was all backed up, and now I feel relieved. You now feel relieved. Well, hopefully we haven't put everyone to sleep uh, <laughs> listening to Crisper. Um, I don't do think so because I think it's interesting. Do you know what we've got next week though? What? Next time we've what? got a booze special. What? Yeah. Yeah. Booze. Yeah. The next podcast we're going to do, we're going to go um, to a fancy cocktail bar in London. And we're gonna, gonna we're gonna try some with uh, um, someone uh, from the drinks industry. Tom Cruise and Brian Brown. That's exactly what's gonna happen. Yeah, oh, so you, can, you can put on your terrible Australian accent. G'day, uh, mate. <laughs> yeah, are you? Bloody nice cocktail. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and, and and you can embarrass me um, in front of all these people that I'm really nice to trying to be nice to. And, Great. And then um, everyone gets to listen to that. Do I get to drink? Yeah, they get to that's the only thing that's important. I'm glad. I'm glad this podcast has just become a way as a way of kind of legitimising your alcoholism. I think we can only do this. Well, I can't imagine we can do this too many more times. Though. Okay. Well, if people like the science shed and they want to get in touch with us, they like us uh, uh, getting drunk for their amusement. You they know, should we suffer. Write, they they should, should write a review on iTunes. They should write reviews on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes, um, it's a little bit harder if you do it on your iPhone. It is possible to do a uh, review on your iPhone, but it's hard. If you go onto your laptop, go to iTunes, go to the Science Shed, you can just leave us a, a star rating and even better, write us a little review. And, it, and if you can insult Nick, that would be the best. But I don't mind being insulted. I'm yeah. kind of used to it. It's my lot in life. Yeah, so if, if, you, can, if you can just say something, whether you like it good or bad at the Science Shed, we'll read them out. And then you can be a part of the shed. Absolutely. And you can find out and you can ask us questions and tell us what you think. You should tweet us. And yeah. You can, you can find me on at the Evans Lab. And I'm uh, at the Steve. Uh, at the Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Steve the Chemist. Which I, I, think, I think my Twitter handle is better than yours. I think yours is a slightly naff. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Because right. you sound like you're the guy who's giving out Solpity Max down in boots. Steve the pharmacist. <laughs> Steve the chemist. Maybe that could be... Well, if it all goes if it all goes tits up in academia, at least I've got that. You'll have to train for three years, Steve. All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Right. See you later. Bye. Bye.